Welcome to Grand Fraud, the global podcast for fraud and corruption investigators, covering the latest on tech trends, best practices, case studies, and legal analysis in the world of serious fraud investigations. Welcome. My name is Paul Milata. I'm a CFE and the host of this show. My guest today is Javier Justo, a Swiss banker best known as the 1MDB whistleblower. In 2015, he disclosed more than 227,000 emails, which proved decisive in showing that 1MDB was not only a case of fraud, but as the US Department of Justice mentioned in 2016, the largest kleptocracy case to date. As he became a target of Malaysia's Prime Minister Najib Razak and his associates, Javier was sentenced to prison in Thailand, where he served 18 months. Subsequently, he was proven to be right in all main points. Javier, welcome to the Grand Fraud Podcast. Good morning, Paul. Thanks for having me with you today. How exactly did your career start? I was born in Geneva in the 60s, in 1966 to be precise. When I finished my commercial school, I was uh, 19, 20 years old. And uh, I went straight to the banking industry because at that time it was, I mean, it, I think it's still the, uh, a good way to start your career. But for me, I had no, I mean, I had no choices. I went into the banking system like a lot of my friends when we just finished school. So that's where it all started in 1987. How was it working like a banker in 1987 in Switzerland? I didn't start as a banker. Of course, I was 20. So you start as a junior doing uh, small jobs. And uh, with the time passing, you get better at, at what you do. And you, you start climbing, climbing the, the stairs. But uh, I would say that if I talk now with my friends that are still in the banking industry, it's not the same job. At that time, it was, uh, it, I would say it was an easy job. You just have to know your clients, manage the, their assets. There were not like today zillions of different instruments that even a lot of bankers don't comprehend. And uh, that was it. Now, if you compare, uh, a Swiss banker is a kind of a detective, a lawyer, uh, a private investigator. It's uh, with zillions of regulations. This means that at the beginning of your career, regulation was not really an issue in Swiss banking. It was not at all. Uh, in, uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, any kind of clients could come straight to the bank, ask the, 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 desk, the, the guy at the desk to open a, a bank account with a bag full of cash, no question asked. Whatever it was a Colombian guy, a South American guy, a Swiss guy, no, no question asked. At that time, even, even lawyers could open banks accounts in Switzerland with, without disclosing the identity of the client. So the, the law firm XYZ could open a bank account in a name of XYZ uh, chapter one, and you, the bank didn't know the, the beneficial owner of the, of the assets. Can lawyers still do that today? No, no. Right. I, I mean, uh, a crook lawyer will always find a way. You, you, of course. You have companies, you have trusts, you have foundations, you have offshores. How did you get involved with 1MDB? How did it start? By friendship. I mean, in the mid-90s, uh, I had my own portfolio company, management company in Geneva. And I became friends with a young Swiss-Saudi guy just playing uh, basketball. And uh, slowly, uh, slowly, he became my best friend. And uh, he did a few small businesses 
uh, trying to represent Swiss companies, trying to enter the Saudi kingdom. He was making a, a small money, let's say a few hundred thousands a year, or even sometimes less and more. And, uh, and that was it. In 2005, 2006, I don't remember exactly, he, he started the company with the, one of the son of the, of the king of Saudi Arabia at that time. It was uh, in 2006, I think it was King Abdullah. And they opened, they created a company with a beautiful name. That was the only good asset uh, of the company. It was called Petro Saudi, meaning that you, can, you could go anywhere and say, I'm a member of Petro Saudi. And people without the deep knowledge of the old industry, they will have thought that this was a company belonging to the royal family of Saudi Arabia, which was not the case at all. So from they opened that from 2005. I left uh, Switzerland in 2009 in, uh, in September, August, September. I was the director of that company, Petro Saudi also. They didn't do a lot of activities. They tried to start uh, some oil businesses in, in uh, South America. Argentina mainly, but that, that was a failure. So I left in 2009, August. And just before leaving, um, a few weeks before leaving, uh, Mr. Obey, the, 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 one of the two shareholders of uh, PetroSaudi, asked me if, if I knew somebody that could evaluate PetroSaudi for a couple of billion dollars. And I said, no, I don't know. And I don't know anybody that will do that. And I don't want to, to find anybody that will do that. I knew that that company was pretty much worthless, but uh, I left. I left in uh, in, uh, in August. Uh, four weeks later, I was in Thailand. I left uh, to Asia with my girlfriend, who now is my wife. And I received a press release from Tarek saying that Petro Sabi signed a joint venture agreement with the uh, with the Malaysian uh, sovereign wealth fund called One MDB. Tarek being Tarek Obeid, the owner you mentioned of Petro Saudi. Tarek Obeid, the, the owner, one of the, at that time he was a co-owner of Petro Saudi with the right. Prince Turkib in Abdulaziz Al Saud. That was in September, October 2009. I was in, in Thailand. A few months later, I was still having some contacts with Tarek and Obeid. And in uh, February 2010, I was in uh, Krabi with, uh, with Laura, my wife, and I received a call and a message from Tarek asking me to go to London to become the number three of his company because he, he signed a major contract with Malaysia and he, did, he needed somebody to take care of uh, of the business. Right. At the beginning, I, I, at the beginning, I said no. I mean, I just keep being friends, and that's that's uh, that will be enough. Uh, I don't want to be an employee, and I don't want to be to work with, for you because the friendship could be uh, damaged. He insisted, and uh, that was it. I decided with my wife, let's go to London, let's spend there a couple of years. Asia will be will still be Asia in two years, and we'll see we'll see then. So I moved to London uh, in mid February two thousand ten. So that's when the uh, let's say relevant phase of your involvement later with One MDB would start February two thousand ten. Can you yeah. describe what you saw when you arrived in London? What was Petro Saudi? How many employees did they have? What were their activities? So uh, when I arrived immediately in mid-February 2010, I went to see the other employees. There were like four to five, let's say, old Englishmen working part-time, doing some evaluation of oil fields. They were located in an in a old uh, building, nothing fancy. 
and uh, Tarek Obeid and Patrick Mahoney, who was the chief executive officer of the chief, chief financial officer, it doesn't matter. So the new business, the new business offices will be ready in a few weeks, and we will move to to one Curzon Street, which is a very prestigious address in London. I went there. I was not really impressed at the beginning, but as soon as we moved to the new offices in Curzon Street, it was it was impressive. There, there were we could have. 20 to 30 employees, and uh, that, that would have been big enough. But we were only five to six people. Right. I knew there was a lot of money because Tarek just bought a, a nice penthouse close to the office. Tarek bought immediately a nice house in Notting Hill. So I knew there, there, was, a, there was good money. The only thing I could, I could see officially, because everything was hidden from, from us, is that we received from Malaysia, from the 1MDB, uh, joint venture, as they call it at that time, uh, 300 million uh, US dollars into the bank account of GP Morgan Geneva. That was the working capital for Petro Saudi. What was your official role at Petro Saudi at that point? I had many different roles. Uh, the, the, the one that took most of my time was the uh, the operational side with Venezuela, with the money received from uh, from the joint venture in uh, in the GP Morgan account in Geneva. We bought a first uh, drill ship, uh, which was called uh, Petrosau Discoverer for 150, around 150 million US dollars. And after that, a few months later, we, we bought a second one with some fi external financing. So we had two, uh, two drilling boats in Venezuela, and uh, that's not an easy thing to, to handle. So I had to go to Venezuela pretty much every month to just fix things. What about other projects? What else? would define, let's say, everyday life working for Petro Saudi in 2010? For myself, I had also to take care of the implementation, of, for example, of the, of the IT structure. We hired a consultant from Geneva, who was my friend. So uh, he was the one doing the IT in my company in Geneva. So I brought him to London to, to, to do the job. So I had to, to supervise that. Also, new employees just... Uh, I, I was doing a lot of things, but mainly my activity was with, with Venezuela. And did the number of employees grow over time or did it just... Not really. In London, we had like, let's say, four to five people plus two guys from the com from the legal uh, uh, department. Let's say we were probably six to seven. Did you have the impression that there is basically an unending source of funds? It's... It's really very difficult to know the, 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 the reality in this case. I knew that there was money. I mean, we, we, uh, this is this anecdote of, the, of this commercial flight. We, we hired a, a jet to go to Ghana because they were exploring any way of working with, with Ghana. So we had the private jet from London to Ghana. We were, when we were in Ghana, of course, no activities done and no business done in Ghana. We're there and we had some problems in, in Venezuela. So the, I was with Patrick Mahoney. He said, let's go to Venezuela. So we, we, we kept the jet, went to Venezuela. And after from Venezuela, I had to go to see Tarek. He was at that time, uh, at, I think it was in LA. So we went with the private jet from um, Venezuela to, to Rochester, Minnesota, and from Minnesota back to London. I mean, it was probably the trip costed around a million dollars or more. Uh, Half of that, but also as another example of, of crazy expenses, Mr. Obey rented a, a yacht, the Princess Mariana, 
they changed the name of the boat, by the way. It was rented that for a couple of weeks. It was a half million euros a week. And I know that because the, the rental agreement was done under my name because he didn't want to appear officially. So I knew there was a lot of money, but whatever it is, 10 million, 100 million, you can't know. You know, if you see the, yeah. the, the, the statements. So yeah. if the question was, if I saw any illegal activities, my answer is no. We had no access to the, uh, at the end, uh, after all the scam was, uh, was exposed, uh, the world knew that Malaysia sent $1.8 billion to, to out of, to the, this fake uh, uh, Petro-Saudi deal. But for us, for the people of Petro-Saudi in London, uh, the number was 300 million. That were the only statement. And I say we, I'm talking about the accountant, the, the legal uh, team in, in, uh, in London, the only people that knew the amount that was uh, received or stolen, to be more precise, were Patrick Mahoney and uh, Tarek Obey. And again, if, if you can't check the numbers, you can't have the magnitude of the scam. I knew that they made money, but it could have been legit money. 300 million received, let's say 10, a 10% commission, which is a lot, but in the old business, it's not something that will surprise a lot of people. You could talk about 30 million. That's good enough to, to finance a private jet or a, or a, or a yacht. Yeah, yeah. How did things turn sour and when? There is a saying that when people receive a lot of money or uh, become, become rich, they will change. And in the case of Tarek it was obvious. He made uh, more than 100 millions. He had more than 100 millions in his bank account at that, at that moment. So it's, it's an open door for all your fantasies, vices, extravaganza. It was a, a nonstop partying. He became a little bit crazy and he started to treat me like he was treating the others, like their employee are pretty much their slave. He was doing that with others, but they didn't react. So it wasn't up to me to, to defend them. But when he started this game with me, it was, it was, that was the beginning of the end. So because I, I'm a nice guy, he was my friend. I accepted that for a few weeks or months. But at one stage, he, he sent me an email at night. He was probably, probably either drunk or drunk. I don't know. He started insulting me, and uh, early morning I sent an email to him and told the and to the people of Petro Saudi saying that uh, as of as of today I, I resign and I will not be any more a member of Petro Saudi. I will not, that I will not go back to the to the office. Right, that's how you stopped working there. What happened? I mean, did you leave London immediately or? I stay in London for a few days. I met Patrick Mahoney a couple of times because we had to agree on a severance package because I joined Petro Saudi with some promises. I left Asia. I left my my uh, starting business business there. We agreed on, on a number. And immediately after we agreed on a number, uh, we left London. So you went back to, to Thailand, right? From London. No, we, we spent... Uh, we spend, uh, it was, this was uh, mid-April. So the... the we had to to settle a few things, and we spend uh, we spend the summer in Europe, mm-hmm. and we moved back to or we we went back to Asia in uh, in September, two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven. So basically, your involvement with Petrol Saudi was from February, mid February, two thousand ten until, roughly speaking, April two thousand eleven. If you speak about the involvement with the. Petro Saudi one MDB deal, yes, absolutely. I was there. I was there before, so I, that's why I knew when 
mm. when they when they said it did a joint venture that Petro Saudi mm. brought in assets for three billions. I I knew that it, it couldn't be possible. A company uh, that has no assets in August can't have three billion assets in September. You have been at Petro Saudi until 2009, and when did you start working for them for the very first time? When they created the company in 2005 or six, I was oh, I was wow. just a, the director of the company with almost no activity, so I was signing the boards meetings, the annual yeah. resolution, and the, this uh, administrative stuff without being yeah. paid. Just to be clear. Right, exactly. So 2011, you are leaving London, you are leaving Europe shortly afterwards. What happened? So uh, an important point of the story, even if you didn't ask, is that I negotiated a severance package for 6.5 million uh, Swiss francs. At the end, in a way, they manipulated me, but I was naive and I accepted. I signed for a 4 million uh, Swiss franc uh, severance package. So we, we let's. I just wanted to mention that because it will come back later on. We we left to Thailand. We went to Koh Samui. That was, uh, let's say, the, the, it took a few months to find the perfect spot, the house, the land. In early 2012, probably we we bought uh, an house there and a nice piece of land uh, close to the house, and we started building a. You can call it a resort, a boutique hotel. Uh, that's anyone's uh, anyone guess. So that took us time. We got engaged in February 2012. Uh, I met Patrick Mahon in 2012. He went to Bangkok to see me, and uh, we spoke. And he said, "Don't worry, Xavier. One day we will. Tarek will pay you the money that he owes you. Don't worry." But Tarek being Tarek, uh, give him time. And I said, "At that time, I didn't really care about." Tarek. During that time, I was hearing stories from Tarek speaking, speaking to my entourage and friends in Geneva that he fired me because it wasn't working very well and so on. It annoyed me a little bit, but th that was okay. Tarek is Tarek, so it, it wasn't like really bothering my nights. We had the wedding, the 15th of February 2013, and during the wedding, a, a common friend who was drunk said, uh, you know, that Tarek I wanted to give you 20,000 uh, Swiss francs to disrupt and, uh, your, your wedding venue. And uh, that, that was the defining moment. And I wrote to Tarek and Patrick. I said, okay, if you want to play that game, now you have to pay me what was owed to me, 2.5 million. Uh, uh, and that's it. We exchanged some uh, emails and uh, Laura got pregnant at the end of the year. And I put that story not even in the back of my mind. It was, I almost forgot that story. The next important point is that uh, in early 2014, I was contacted by a British journalist, Claire Rucasso Brown. And uh, she called me, I was in Thailand, and said, I, I, I heard your name, and I think you may have information that may be helpful in the fight against corruption. And I told her, if you want to, to talk to me, you will have to come to, to Thailand. And that's what happened. She she came to visit me uh, in Bangkok. That is the beginning of your relationship with the media, which led in 2015, if I'm not wrong, for you to pass to her a data dump of roughly 230,000 emails from Petrol Saudi. Is that correct? Yes, and that is correct, but... 
we have to develop that and to be very precise. People have the tendency to see whistleblowers like uh, the reincarnation of the Mahatma Gandhi uh, working in a white dress with a stick and just drinking water and uh, eating rice. Yeah. Any story that you can see, read, or listen about whistleblowers, there is always some kind of... Nobody is born a whistleblower. It, it, there is always some event uh, that, that will start this, um, mm-hmm. this thing. So when I met Claire the first time, I, I felt very impressed by, the, by this woman, by her fighting spirit, her strong personality. So we, we became quite friends immediately. At least there was a, a strong bond. I, I told her, like I'm, I'm telling you now, I said, this is pretty much all the story of Petro Saudi. It is the world story with the one MDB deal. So I gave her a few, a few documents because when there is, you have again to realize that 227,000 emails in four different languages with attachment, we're talking about probably a 1 million page. A4 pages. If you convert that into books, it's probably a couple of million books. It will take probably a, a normal life expectancy for a human being to go through that. So I gave her a few documents just that we we we, we took like this uh, randomly. And I, she said, what do, what do you want for that? And I said, I just want what the money that Petro Saudi money owes me. And she said, why? You can ask her, because I may think that if I give you that, I will face some problems. And I would just probably need money to, to defend me against those problems. I wasn't expecting the kind of problems that will come later. But that, that, that was the, the first meeting, the couple of first meetings. She left, I gave her some files, and she came back to me. In, uh, again, I put that in the back of my mind. My first son was born, so I had really other things to, to do or to think. And uh, she came back in February 2015 saying, you have to come with me to Singapore. There is a guy there that wants to, to see you and probably buy the, the file. He's not a politician because one of the things we decided with Claire, we didn't want any politician involved there. And she found a, a, a media guy, uh, a guy that owns uh, um, newspapers in Malaysia, and he was mm-hmm. living between Malaysia and Singapore. So I went to, to Singapore uh, mid-February 2015. At that point, you had not passed the large data dump yet. Is that correct? That is correct. I just gave Claire a few documents that we found together. Uh, but because again, if, you, if I give you the, the hard drive with two, these 90 gigabytes of information, if you plug it to your computer and you have to start looking for something you can go for a swim, a lunch, and have a massage. And when you come back, probably the, the file will start to open. What made you pass on the uh, emails to Claire and possibly also to the gentleman you met in Singapore? So I arrived in Singapore mid-February 2015, really without knowing what was going to happen. So I met uh, two people from this group called uh, The Edge, a media group in, in Malaysia. One was uh, Tong, Mr. Tong, and the other was Mr. Uh, Ketat. Claire was there and they brought also a team of IT guys. We spent, I think, the whole day uh, checking files, talking, mainly talking. Until that moment, I really didn't know the, 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 the extent or the implication of this 1MDB corruption machine. For me, until that moment, it was a kind of legit sovereign wealth fund. 
like the Norwegian one and other ones. But they explained me. And with the files that they could recover from my data, it was clear it was just a big corruption machine. After spending the whole day with these Malaysian people speaking about the poverty in Malaysia, not only the rich uh, streets of Kuala Lumpur, I don't want to go to, to, to develop that too much because it could take hours if we speak about this, this meeting. But they convinced me that the only good thing, the only moral choice that I had was to give the file. So I gave the file without getting any money. They proposed me to give me a, a money, the time for them to find the money. I said, no, they, we're far beyond speaking about money. I mean, at the end, we are all humans. Some people will do whatever they want for money. I was not raised like this. I mean, I, I, I still have, as of today, the integrity, let's say, like a lot of people, like you, but like probably 99% of, of the audience. So I, I couldn't give, I mean, I couldn't sell the data. I gave the data and I told them, it's okay, don't pay me or pay me. I mean, it's not about money anymore. This is just something that morally I have to do. They took the file, Claire took a copy and, and we left. We left means you went back to Thailand, you went back to your family. I went back to my wife and to my, my, my son. And so that was February 15. You passed yeah. on the information to them. Now they had the time to analyze it. When did they publish the first article? I don't remember exactly, but it was only a few weeks, uh, maybe two to three, four weeks. I don't remember. I think it was March. It was March, definitely. And uh, okay, the first article was published by Claire. It was called... Uh, the ace of the century. And I read that, I was a little bit surprised, let's, let's put it that way, because they said that they were going to build the, the story slowly, step by step, not, to, not for that to become nuclear. But they didn't. And it was okay. At the end, the truth is the truth. Yeah. You don't need to be softened with the truth. Yeah, where did she publish the first story? The first story was published by Claire in a blog, which is called the Sarawak Report. The Sarawak report, yes. Yeah. So that's when things started to uh, to go berserk in every sense of the word. How were you affected, and when? So when the article was published, I was, I will say, surprised. My wife was, she was a little bit more uh, worried. Let's put it that way. And I told her, "Don't worry. This is anyway. This is the truth. Those are the facts." Uh, we live in Thailand, which is a Buddhist country. This is Malaysia, a Muslim country. Country, sorry, They don't go along very well. There are still a lot of problems in the south border. So it's okay. We don't risk anything. That was another of my uh, big mistakes. What happened afterwards? So my wife went to Switzerland in June, early June. Uh, to, to, to introduce our son to the family and friends. And I was supposed to go there a few weeks later. At that time, I was training for an Ironman. I was uh, 100% uh, on this. The 20th of June, 2015, I was supposed to meet the immigration department at home because uh, we had to, I had to renew my work permit. It is something very usual. You do that uh, every year. I was, I was okay with that. I did my uh, early training. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I was ready to meet them, to show them the, the resort, the constructions, the, the permits, and so on, like they, they always did. But instead of uh, being the immigration police uh, from Koh Samui, it was the police from, uh, from Bangkok and from Samui also. Were you arrested on that day on the spot? 
Yeah, I mean, the, my, I had a maid at that time. I said, ah, police is, I mean, people are coming. And I, I looked through the window. There was like six to 10 uh, cars uh, and like 15, 20 people. I didn't count each of them, but there were like, a lot of people. And my first thought, and I swear to God that it's true, at that time, there was a change in, the, in Thailand. There was a military regime back to power. And my thought was, wow, they think that they take the working permit very seriously now. <laughs> that was really that was your first thought that ten cars are coming to check a working permit. <laughs> I said, "Wow, why?" Not? I mean, this is Thailand; it's the land of the impossible. Yes, the last thing you thought about was one MDB, right? I mean, I know I have no thoughts about one MDB whatsoever. I opened right. the door; there was a nice guy. He looked at me, said, hey, "This is just how are you?" And in my mind, so maybe I know the guy, but I don't remember. So. I wanted to shake his hand, but I just put my hand forward and uh, immediately out of nowhere, I had no time to, to breathe. I was handcuffed and uh, brought inside the house. What happened on that day? So first they, they searched the house for two hours, right. trying to find, I don't know why, but I, I knew after that they took everything, uh, broken old phones, uh, papers, because after you have the media exposure. So they took ridiculous things like, files about uh, surgery that I had in my knee, just to take the maximum of documents to present to the press. So they spent two hours there. They wanted me to sign a document in Thai. I said, uh, there is no way I will sign anything in Thai. But apparently, they didn't speak English until that moment when I said, I'm not going to sign. One of the guys there uh, spoke a quite decent English. And he gave me a piece of paper where I could read uh, that the name Petro Sadi was mentioned that I had to sign. I said, I'm not going to sign any paper without a lawyer. So they brought me to the local police station. I tried to call my lawyer, but he was not picking his phone. So the police sent me two of their French lawyers. Not, no need to say they were crooks, but I had no others. These lawyers said, don't worry, Xavier, this is a minor offense. Apparently, you are accused of blackmail attempt, not even blackmail, blackmail attempt. This is an offense that you don't go to jail. You just have to go to Bangkok tomorrow to put a bail and go back to, to Samui the, the same day. I said, OK, fine. If that's the case, fine. So they put me in the local cell. It was a, a cage outside. And uh, I was able to talk to my wife. One of the, my um, employees of the resort, they, they, they put his phone on loudspeaker. And uh, I called Laura. I said, don't worry. I'm just arrested. It, it's fine. It's nothing. I'll be back tomorrow. And she stopped crying. Maybe the, uh, the, the woman's six senses was already uh, mm. on alert. Right. My note. For me, I was convinced it was, uh, okay, it's, it's an event. I'm, I'm going to Bangkok tomorrow. I'll sign some papers. I'll be back home. And just to be sure, the plaintiff was the state of Thailand, right? Nobody else. It was Patrick Mahoney uh, that put the charge in the kingdom of Thailand for attempted blackmail. Because when I met him in 2012 or 13, I don't remember exactly the day, I mean, without evidences, he just reported that I, I did a blackmail attempt. And I just told Patrick, I, you have to pay me back the money that is owed to me. But I mean, this is Thailand. You don't need evidences to press charges. This is the end of part one of my interview with Javier Justo, the one MDB whistleblower. In part two, he will tell us 
what happened to him after he got arrested in Thailand, and how 1MDB exploded in 2016 to become the world's largest known case of kleptocracy. Thank you very much for listening to the Grand Fraud Podcast. Thanks for joining us this week on the Grand Fraud Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, nemexis.de, and subscribe to this show so you'll never miss an episode.